for all that you've done. Um, surgery went well. No problems or complications with that. Uh, since then, uh, honestly, it, it has to be just how good God is and how much people have prayed. I've had almost no pain at all in it whatsoever. The first day, right after the I got, um, day after the surgery, they made me get up and sit in my chair. Uh, and the lady kind of dropped my leg a little bit faster than what it should have. And at that point, I almost cried like a little girl because it hurt pretty bad. Uh, but since then, there hasn't been hardly any pain at all. Uh, biggest difficulty is getting around on the crutches. Uh, and that is, my, I would say, my great fear in life right now is falling. Uh, because I haven't had any troubles, I haven't stumbled or anything like that. Uh, but I just fear, man, that would be a bad day for everybody, uh, well, for everybody being me, if that were to happen. Um, I ask you to pray that, that I wouldn't, especially getting in and out of here. It's kind of tricky because there's not much space. <laughs> um, but I'm glad to be back. I tell you, I always joke that I'm an introvert and I like to be alone. But there's limits even to that. I'm just going to tell you right now. Uh, after a certain point in time in life, you need to be out and see other people and be with other people. So I, I am glad to be here today. Glad for the opportunity. Uh, privilege to be here. I, I appreciate the food that you guys brought. I appreciate those who called and checked and texted or Facebooked or something like that, who brought food and everything. I, I, I love my church family and I am so thankful for you all. Uh, we're going to be back in the Gospel of John today. And change, change is a necessary part of life. There is no living in this world without change. Right, let me kind of show you this. Right? Raise your hand if you're married. Okay. Now, those that are married, that raise your hands, here's what you found out soon upon your marriage. You couldn't live the same as a married person as you did as a single person, right? Because if you did live as a single, per, uh, as a single person once you were married, you probably didn't raise your hand just then because your marriage probably didn't last very long. You probably didn't have a healthy or a happy marriage. You, you have to adjust. The transition from going to be single to being married requires you to make changes. Now, raise your hand if you have kids. Okay. Now, those that have kids. Right? Again, you had to make changes, didn't you? There's, you learned quickly there's a difference between being married without children and married with children. Right? Things have to change. You can't keep doing the things that you had always done. That the transition from being without children to having children, it requires change. And then we could go on and on. Right? I mean, there are just events in life that require us to adjust our life, to make changes, to do it. We, we get a new job. We get a promotion. We get new hours. Um, Different things happen in our lives. We go to the doctor and he breaks our leg. All of these things require us to adjust our lives and to make changes. You, you have to change. That is a rule without exception. And what is true in our physical lives is also true in our spiritual lives. The Christian life is a life of change. Everything about the Christian life is about change. I mean, just think about the way the Bible describes salvation. You are born again. You have been regenerated. You're a new creation. Think about how the, the Bible describes living the Christian life. You're changed from glory to glory. You're being sanctified. Right? All, all of these things are pictures of change. Everything in the Christian life is about change. When a person trusts in Jesus Christ for his or her salvation... They are doing more than expressing a desire to change their eternal destinies. They are surrendering their lives to Jesus and becoming His disciple. That is a, a part of salvation. 
But a part of salvation is that we don't just say, Jesus, save me from hell and let me live how I want in this life. It is to say, Jesus, save me, change me, I'm yours. But in all of this change, it starts in that moment. It starts the moment that we surrender our lives to Christ and we become his disciple. What does it look like when we become a disciple of Jesus? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Um, I'm going to ask you to page 810 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. But I hope you'll excuse me if I don't. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. Uh, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to be, which, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. Now they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him throughout the day. And that was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak uh, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated the stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you and you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. The title of the message is Becoming a Disciple. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you, God, for the opportunity we have to gather, study your word. We thank you for Jesus and the hope that he gives us. Father, without Jesus, we have no reason to gather. We have nothing to study, nothing to do. Uh, there's just no hope without him. We thank you for that. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. We ask today that as we look at your word, your Holy Spirit would come and he would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive your word. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts hearts to obey what you have revealed to us in your word. Let your spirit examine us, check us. Father, to see where we stand in our relationship with you. Father, some today may not know you. They may never have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we ask you today to begin to work in their hearts and draw them to the place where they would repent of their sins and they would believe in Jesus Christ. Others, Father, may have begun to fall back in their relationship with you. Lord, they've kind of begun to walk in the, back in the world and, and just kind of slid back a little bit in their relationship with you. And I pray today that you would begin to deal in their hearts and you would draw them back to yourself. Father, others may have drawn Luke, uh, grown lukewarm in their relationship with you. It's just something that they do, a box that they check. And I ask you today to work in their lives and revival, Lord, that they would just be excited and, and, and zealous about serving you. Father, let your Holy Spirit work in all of our hearts in the ways that we need. Fill me with your Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want done. Be glorified, I ask, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Why you may be seated. 
Now, in the passage we're studying, we see the early days of Jesus' ministry and these men's first introduction to Jesus. At the same time, we see that following Jesus, it does change us. Right? Uh, these men, they, they meet Jesus, they begin to follow Jesus, and there are some immediate changes that happen in their lives. Things that they change right that moment. But these immediate changes aren't the only changes that are going to be made in their lives. Right? As they begin to follow Jesus, He is going to continuously work in their lives to make them different than they already are. The goal in this is that He would make them in such a way that they would be like Jesus. I mean, that is the ultimate goal of the Christian life on earth. What does God's will for you and I? So that we would be like Jesus. That's what He wanted for them. They would, they, their transition or their, their transformation would start here. And it would continue all the days of their life. Now, what was true of them then is true of us now. There are changes that Jesus makes that moment we call out to Him. That moment that we ask Him to save us and, and we determine we are going to follow Him. But those changes are not the only changes that Jesus will ever make in our lives. From that moment on, Jesus will begin to work in our lives to, to help us to become more and more like Him. He is, he is the goal. He is the, the target. He is what we're shooting for is to be like Jesus. And so he changes our eternal destiny. And we never want to minimize the fact that Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. At the same time, we do not want to believe that that is all that Jesus saves us from. That that is all the change that Jesus makes. We are not saved from the wrath to come to live how we want in this life. We are saved from the wrath to come to live for the one that has saved us. And he begins to transform us and to make us different. All the changes that Jesus brings into our life, everything that he does, always has the goal of helping us to be like him. And really, that's what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be an apprentice to Jesus with the goal of becoming like Jesus. And it is from this that, that our main idea comes from. Um, being a disciple means becoming like Jesus. Right, this, is, this is it. Now, it's important to understand that these are changes that Jesus makes. And there's two things with this that we've got to understand. One, it's not that we say, I surrender my life to Jesus, now I'm going to make myself better. Right, we don't do that. We would fail at that. We are not capable of making ourselves better. We surrender our lives to Jesus, and then Jesus begins to work in us to make us more like Him. But, Jesus... It's not like I just keep going the way I'm going and suddenly I'm different. Boop, hey, how'd that happen? No. Jesus shows us things that are wrong in our lives, things that need to be changed in our lives, and then we have to cooperate with what He's doing in our lives. We have to... There's a part that He plays in our transformation. That is to reveal to us things that are wrong. That is to reveal to us changes that need to be made. Then there's the part that we make. Then what we do is we adjust our lives. We adjust our thinking and our actions and our lives until they are conformed to what Jesus is revealing to us. We have to cooperate with Him in the transformation process so that we can become like Him. And what I want to show you today in this long passage is just two, two things, two ways that we cooperate with Jesus so that we can become more like Jesus. First, follow Jesus wherever He leads. Follow Jesus wherever He leads. Now, this passage picks up not long after Jesus' baptism. In the passage just before this, John the Baptist has announced that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's an amazing declaration of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. 
Shortly after John makes that declaration, Jesus walks by again. He is standing with some of his disciples. John looks at his disciples, and I kind of picture going, that's the guy. That's what it's about right there. That's who we're here for. The Lamb of God. Now, they hear this, and they understand that John has always been preaching. He's not the one. He's not the focus. He's not the central. Jesus says there's one coming. And then he points him out, that's him. Well, these two disciples are obviously curious. And so they, they head out. And they begin to follow Jesus. Now, what we see in verse 37 and 38 is that they just kind of, I guess you could say they stalked him, right? The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus, right? So what they did was they just kind of walked around and saw how he acted. What did he do? I mean, if this guy's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, what's he going to do? Now, keep in mind, at this point, Jesus has done no, he has not taught publicly at all. Uh, Jesus hasn't given the Sermon on the Mount. He has not put the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their place. He has not done any miracles. <clears throat> the only, all they have to go off of about Jesus being the Messiah is John saying, that's the guy. So they're watching to see what he does. Jesus realizes they're following him. He turns and says, what do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which is translated as teacher, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And they, they come and they begin to follow him. They accepted the invitation and they began to follow Jesus. Now, look down at verse 43. The next day, Jesus went to Galilee, found Philip, and said, follow me to Philip. Well, Philip, again, there's no miracles, there's no teaching, just for whatever reason, believes that Jesus is the one. And he chooses to follow after him. He then goes and finds a friend named Nathaniel and says, we have found the Messiah. He came from Nazareth. Nathaniel says, how can anything good come from Nazareth? And he says, come and see. And Nathaniel, probably just out of curiosity at this point, gets up to go and see. Jesus says, I saw you and you under the fig tree before Philip came to get you. He said, hey, that's pretty neat. You must be the Messiah. And he said, oh, you're going to see better things than that. Trust me. And he follows him. And in these passages, these two stories here, there are, I think, three, three examples of what it means to follow Jesus anywhere he leads. The first is with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is pretty important up to this point. John the Baptist is featured in all of the gospel accounts. John is prominently featured in all of the gospel accounts. John is, he's different. He goes out into the middle of nowhere. He's dressed in a weird way. He eats weird food. And he preaches really, really hard sermons. He preaches that all must repent of their sins. And all must be baptized to show that they've repented. He, he preaches that repentance without a change in life is good for nothing. He says that it's not enough to be a Jew to be a part of the kingdom of God. You have to repent of your sins and believe in God. Well, crowds come out there to hear what John has to say. And, and they listen to him. And, and apparently, I would say... Hundreds, if not thousands of people heard John preach, went into the Jordan River to be baptized by John. He was, he was a somewhat, right? I mean, if, if he lived in today's time, he would have his own channel on TBN, right? It would be the John the Baptist show, right? And people would just show him out there preaching and walking and going. He was, he was big. But John understood John wasn't the point. John understood that Jesus was the point. And so John not only preached... But John just would point people to Jesus, and he did that even when they left, because that's what he was there for. See, John wasn't there to be the point. John was there to point people to Jesus. And so he was going to follow Jesus and point people to Jesus and testify about Jesus, even if and even when it would make him completely 
irrelevant. Right? Because at some point, the movement John started would fade away, and all of those people would then go to Jesus, and John would be a nobody. But John understood that's the way it was supposed to be. He followed Jesus to the point that later on in John 3, he would say, He must increase, I must decrease. John followed Jesus, even though it meant he would become irrelevant. He followed Jesus wherever Jesus led him. The second, it is these two disciples, uh, Andrew and whoever was with him. Andrew, again, they, they had seen no miracles. Jesus had not turned the water into wine. That's next week. Jesus had not raised the dead. He had not healed leprosy. He had not taught astonishing teaching. He had not put anyone in their place. He had not really done anything but walk around and be baptized and have John say that's the guy. And you think about it. They had been following John because John was obviously something. God was obviously working through John, making a difference in the world around them. I would say, in a lot of ways, John following John probably got comfortable. It was familiar, right? John got up at daylight and he went out in the Jordan River and just yelled at people. People repented of their sins, came out to John, and he baptized them. And they listened to John and they tried to adjust their lives and do the things that John said. But now John points them out to Jesus, somebody they have never seen and they don't know, and says that's the Messiah. And they leave the familiar and the comfort of following John and they begin to follow Jesus. Who Jesus at this point doesn't have a ministry. He's just a guy walking around. I mean, at this point, he's not even an itinerant minister, a prophet. He is nothing, as far as they know. But they are willing to leave everything that they know in order to follow him because they believe he probably is the Messiah. They gave up the certainty of John because John was certainly someone sent from God. To the uncertainty of Jesus because Jesus had done nothing at this point to prove he was sent from God. They left the familiar of John because it's always comfortable when you get used to doing the same thing over and over again. To the unfamiliar of Jesus, what would he do? Where would he lead? What would we, where would we go? They left it all to follow Jesus. It was a huge step of faith. They chose to follow Jesus wherever he led them. And then the third is with Philip and Nathaniel. Think about it. Philip and Nathaniel had their own lives. Right? Now, we don't know. What they were doing before Jesus called them. The Bible doesn't give us any answers. It doesn't tell us what they were. But here's some things I think it would be safe to say. Right? They, they were people who lived in that day. So chances are they had jobs. Right? I mean, you just, didn't, you just didn't not have a job. You had a job. So they had jobs. They, they probably had some sort of a family. Whether they were married or not, we don't know. They had you know, family. Unlikely they were orphans. It would have mentioned that usually. Something like that. They, they had homes. A place where they lived. And then Jesus comes by, who has done no miracles, taught nothing amazing, and he says, come follow me. And, and Philip is like, okay. He, he walks away from everything he's ever known to go for Jesus. Nathaniel, come. Philip goes to Nathaniel says, we've met the Messiah. Now, Nathaniel's a little more skeptical, right? He's from Nazareth. Anything good come from Texas? I mean, Nazareth. And, and he says, just come and see. Just come and see. And so he goes. And Jesus is like, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip came. That's pretty neat. I'll follow you now. And, and they left everything, everything to go and follow Jesus. I mean, they put their lives on hold. Walked away from, from it all to go to follow Jesus. I mean, that's, these are pictures of what disciples do. This is what it means to follow Jesus. 
is to go wherever he leads, whenever he leads us to go there. But the disciple of Jesus Christ isn't to pursue familiarity or comfort, but Jesus. We're to follow Jesus no matter where he leads us. We're to follow Jesus no matter when he leads us. I mean, you think about even Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Luke. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. That, that's, that is what it means to be a disciple. That is what we are supposed to do. And I'd initially thought, I'd give you several examples of what it would mean for us to follow Jesus. What it could mean for us to follow Jesus wherever he leads, right? I mean, because there are a lot of ways. And a lot of things it could mean to us to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Right? I mean, I like to follow Jesus into holiness. I mean, that's obviously true, right? I mean, before we were saved, we lived in sin. The Bible calls Jesus the, the good shepherd and the shepherd psalmist as he leads us in the path of righteousness. So obviously, following Jesus means he's going to lead us out of a life of sin and, and into a life of holiness and a life of righteousness. Um, if we were to follow Jesus, we would follow Jesus in, in getting involved and serving God in His church. Right? Jesus doesn't lead us to jump from church to church and place to place. Jesus leads us to a place to get involved and make a difference in a place. Jesus, if we're to follow Jesus, we have to follow Him in the, the mission of making disciples. Jesus called some of the other disciples in the Gospel of Mark. He said, come and follow me and I will make you to be fishers of men. So what does it look like if we follow Jesus? We're fishing for men. We're, we're actively involved in the mission that Jesus came for, to make disciples of all nations. So all of those things are a part of what it would mean for us to follow Jesus anywhere. But there were so many examples that I decided the best way to explain it is that if we're going to follow Jesus anywhere, it means that we have to be determined to follow him anywhere he leads us and, and in everything he leads us to do. Right? And that means... That there is nothing I won't do if Jesus leads me to do it. I'll go anywhere Jesus wants me to go. I'll do anything Jesus wants me to do it. And I'll do it in the time that Jesus wants it done. And you see this all through the Gospels. That this is what it meant for people to follow Jesus. Mark chapter 1. Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, and James, and John. Sometime after this... They go back to fishing. Jesus is ready to start his ministry. He goes to them and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What did they do? They dropped their nets. They left their business. And they followed Jesus. Now, this is huge. Leaving, dropping, they walked away from what would appear to be a successful business. Right? Fishing, I don't know that it was like the Donald Trump jobs of the world back then. But it was a consistent job. There was always a need. And their business was enough that they had multiple people working for it. And even employees, we find in some of the gospel accounts. So it was a successful company. They walked away from a job. A successful job. An important job. And they left everything in order to follow Jesus. We see the same thing in the next chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus goes to Matthew. says, come and follow me. Matthew is sitting down at the receipt of taxes. Right? He is, he is a tax collector and people are actively coming to him at that point, paying their taxes. Jesus says, follow me. Mark, uh, Matthew gets up and walks away and follows Jesus. Now, this is important because Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they left. But they were like part owners in the business. Right? If Jesus didn't work out, they could go back to the fishing business. Dad had been taking care of it. Obviously, he's going to take his sons back on. Matthew 
was a Jew working for the Romans. The Romans didn't care what kind of people they hired. And they were obviously not concerned with how they ripped the people off. But the Romans did have a rule. You walk off the job, you're done for life. You were blackballed. So Matthew leaves to follow Jesus. And at that point, if Jesus doesn't work out, Matthew's toast. Because he can't go back to being a tax collector. Now that he's been a tax collector, he'll never be accepted in good Jewish society again. All his eggs in the basket of Jesus. And if Jesus doesn't work out, I don't know what he's going to do. He'll be a homeless person. People throwing rocks at him. He will not ever have anything ever again. It's easy to conclude that was only then. Jesus doesn't do things like that now. But this is the example that we find over, over and over again. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, wants to know how to be saved. Jesus says, here's what you've got to do. Keep the commandments. Well, I've done that. Well, you like one thing. Sell all that you have. Give that money to the poor. Follow me and I'll give you riches in heaven. What would the rich young ruler do? Well, he couldn't do it, could he? It was just too high a price to follow Jesus. So he walked away sad. He walked away without eternal life and he chose not to follow Jesus. But over and over again, this, this happens. Jesus calls people to, to make drastic changes in their life and to trust Him and to follow Him where He's wanting them to go and what He's wanting them to do. Now, obviously, all of us are not called to leave houses and lands and wealth to follow Jesus. But, considering all that the Bible says about it, it's likely some are. And what I think we're to see from that is not so much... Well, I've lived in the same town and the same place around my family all my life, so I'm not following Jesus. That's not the point I want you to get from this. The point I want you to get is, there is nothing in our lives so sacred that Jesus might not call us to get up and leave it in a moment's notice. There is nothing so comfortable in our lives that Jesus might not say, step out of that comfort and into the unknown. There is nothing that Jesus might not call us to do. Well, I'm at a certain age. God called Abraham to leave the land of or the land of Haran when he was 75 years old. There is never a time when Jesus might not call you to follow him somewhere. There is never anything that Jesus might not call us to do. And so the, the posture the disciples of Jesus Christ have is, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I'll do it when you want it done. I will follow you anywhere. Where you want me to go. Are you willing to follow Jesus anywhere? Are you willing to go where he wants you to go and do what he wants you to do? No matter what that is. That is a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ who is being changed to be like Jesus Christ. Secondly, change whatever Jesus wants me to change. Now, the events of the previous day had had such an impact upon Andrew that he went out and found his brother and took him to Jesus. We see in verse 40. One of the two that had heard John speak, followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. Andrew was all in. Right? Jesus is the guy. Let me get my brother and show him that Jesus is the guy. And we don't know why Peter went. Did Peter believe right off the bat of Andrew's testimony? Or did he just think this was an interesting thing to look at? Don't know. All we know is that he went. He went and he came to Jesus. And it says, Jesus looks at him and said, 
You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. He changed his name. Uh, now, a changing the name in the Jewish culture was much more significant than giving someone a nickname like we might do. Simon is a... Uh, is derived from Simeon, the second oldest of Jacob's twelve sons. If you've read the, the book of Genesis, you know that Simeon was like unstable. He was impulsive in nature. Seems this, this was a family trait that carried over to Peter. Uh, if you've read through the gospel accounts, you know Peter was, he spoke first, thought later. Right? I mean, he was all about, I've got the answer. Oh, that was stupid sounded. I wish I hadn't spoke now. I can always relate to Peter. Uh, and Jesus saw, this is what Peter was. He was impulsive. In his words, probably impulsive in his actions. I mean, because isn't it true? Somebody that's impulsive in their words is often impulsive in their lives as well. Probably that was a characteristic of Peter's life. He wasn't, when you thought of dependable people, I need somebody that can, I can just trust to get this job done and do it well. Well, there's Peter. <laughs> no. What about John? Right? I mean, Peter wasn't the go-to guy for something like that. Well, Jesus looks at Peter and he sees what he is. But he doesn't stop there. He sees what, what he can become. If he surrenders his life to Jesus, he sees what Jesus can make him into as a spirit-filled disciple. And he changes his name to Cephas. Now, Cephas came from the Aramaic word meaning a rock. Peter, we're most familiar with, is the equivalent word in the Greek. And what we're learning here is that impulse is going to give way to steadfastness in Peter. No one but Jesus had any idea uh, at the time how much would change, how much the change in the name would reflect change in the person right because you think about it the peter in the gospels i mean that dude's different by the time he gets to acts isn't he i mean he is a rock preaches on the day of pentecost don't don't talk about jesus anymore or we'll kill you you do what you got to do i'm gonna do what i got to do i mean all of that i mean he was changed but it wasn't just peter it wasn't just like peter turned over a new leaf or made a new year's resolution jesus changed Peter and turned him into someone that could be depended on, someone that was usable to help take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus looked beyond what Peter was and he saw what he could turn Peter into. And that change, that difference would require change and change that only Jesus could bring. And it's the same with us. When Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see us. For who we are in our sins and our failures. He doesn't see us for who we are with our character flaws and the issues that we have. What Jesus sees when he looks at us is who he can make us into. The difference he can make in our lives. The change he can make and how usable we can be for his kingdom and his glory. If we will just follow him and let him turn us into who we were meant to become. But this requires change. And it's not just a change that, that we want to make. That's the difficult part. Right? We have to be willing to change anything that Jesus says needs to be changed. And this is a faith issue. It's a faith issue because we have to believe that Jesus knows best. Right? Because I might look at my life and say, I would like this changed. Jesus would say, that'll get changed later, but here's what I want you to work on right now. And to work on what he wants to work on when he wants to work on it. Also, I don't know how you are, but there have been times in my life when God revealed things in my life that needed to be changed, and I thought those things were just fine. I thought I had those things under control and was, was doing good, and God's like, no, 
You're all fouled up there. Change. It's faith. You know best. Your change is best. And only your changes will help me to become like Jesus. And, and these are big issues at times. These are faith issues. These require us to be surrendered to Jesus and to be willing to change anything that he wants us to change. Now, there's several areas of our lives that Jesus changes. Right? Jesus changes our thinking. Uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians, and he said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of your mind. And in Romans 12, 2, but be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Bible's clear. Believers are to think differently than unbelievers. Now, there's a lot that goes along with this. But the, the main thing I want us to understand today is in reference to God. Unbelievers don't take God into consideration in their decision making. Now, they don't think about God. They don't think about God's will. And they don't think about God's want. And they don't think about God's standards as revealed in Scripture. They do what is socially acceptable. They do what is easiest. They do what is convenient. They do what feels good. But God's will, God's want, and God's standards revealed in the Scriptures are not taken into consideration at all. That should change when we become a believer in Jesus Christ. A part of the way we are to think differently from the world is that we are to run all things through the lens of God. God's will. God's want, God's standards, as revealed in Scripture. And this requires change in the way we think. A willingness to say, God is right no matter what the culture says. God is right no matter how I feel. God is right no matter how inconvenient it is. And this, it affects the way that we live. Because the way we think, determines the way we live. It affects the way that we talk. It affects the way that we prioritize our life. It affects the way that we react to stressors. It, re- it affects the way that we work on our jobs. It affects the way that we raise our children. It affects the way that we spend our time and our money. What we read and what we watch on TV. There's, there is no area of our lives that this will not affect. Jesus wants to change the way that we think. He wants to renew our mind. So that we filter all things that come into our lives through the lens of God. God's will, God's want, God's standards as revealed in Scripture. Secondly, that Jesus changes my lifestyle. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I'm sure we're familiar with the idea of holiness. But one of the ways that Jesus changes us, it is in regards to our lifestyle. As I mentioned, he leads us in the paths of righteousness. You think about it. Before we were saved, there were things that we did. And we thought those things were fine and dandy. Then we get saved. God changes, Jesus changes our thinking. And we understand God's will, God's want, God's ways, God's standards as revealed in Scripture. And suddenly we realize these things are no longer fine and dandy anymore. What do we do? Well, according to Peter, we abstain from those things. We, we get rid of them. We don't do them. We did them before because we didn't know any better. But we didn't know what God said. We didn't know what God wanted. We didn't know what God's standards were. But now we do know. So don't do them anymore. Change the way 
that you live. Now, again, as with thinking, this isn't just something we do on our own. This is something Jesus begins to work with in our lives. Jesus begins to reveal things to us that need to be changed in the way we think and the way that we're living. And what we're to do then is to cooperate with him. Right? When he says, stop thinking this way and start thinking that way, we say, yes, Lord. And we stop. When Jesus says, don't do this and do this, we say, yes, Lord. And we change the way that we live. This is a, a necessary part of what it means to be a disciple that is becoming like Jesus. And then Jesus also, he changes our focus. And those who don't know Jesus, they focus on the here and the now, which makes sense. Right? If you don't understand eternity or you don't believe there's an eternity, here and now is all there is. You, you might as well focus on that. But the disciple of Jesus Christ has had the, the veil lifted, so to speak. We know. Our mind's been renewed. We understand that there is eternity, that this life is not all that there is, that, the, that death here opens up eternal life somewhere. And so it changes the focus that we live from living in the here and the now to focus on the kingdom of God. Uh, and Paul talks about this. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, Paul wrote to the Philippians, Philippi was a Roman colony, but its citizens and its, citizen, and its people were citizens of Rome. Now, this is despite the fact that they lived in the country Macedonia. Uh, the citizens of Roman colonies lived as Romans. They worshipped Roman gods. They dressed in the Romans' way. They, they took part in the Roman pleasures and Roman social affairs. They, they basically they lived like they were Romans. They lived in another country, but they lived as Romans because Rome was the lord of, their, of who they were. Now, Paul's point here is important for us to see. Believers live on this earth, but we are citizens of heaven. And this means that we should live like citizens of heaven. Right? We should live with heaven's standards. We should live with heaven's priorities. We should worship the God of heaven and not the God of earth. We should engage in, in, in things that, that bring glory to God and not shame to him. We should live by the laws and the standards and the will of the God of heaven. And he emphasizes this point by reminding them that one day Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he's going to change us. Right, the change that he begins in this life is going to be fulfilled in that moment. Now, this is, that was a great verse. But the verses just before it provide a powerful contrast to understand the difference in focusing on things of the earth and focusing on the things of heaven. And he says this, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, their enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now with these verses, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go through it in the back. Start at the bottom, work my way to the top. He says that there are some who set their mind on earthly things, which basically means they're focused on this life. Right? This doesn't mean that they're living in sin. This doesn't mean that they're mass murderers and serial killers. What this means is their focus, the, the, the priority of their life, is here and now. They focus on the things of earth instead of the things of heaven. The things that they want to do and the things that, that God might want them to do. Right? So it might be things like popularity, money, possessions. Uh, it could be focusing on doing whatever makes their life comfortable. Focusing on themselves and just doing whatever they want at the expense of anything else. Right? They, they set their mind on earthly things. Now that's bad. But it doesn't sound all that bad until you look right just above it. Whose God is their belly, 
whose glory ends their shame. Now, their God is their belly. It doesn't refer just to food. It refers to physical desires. So what that means is, what drives them in their life? Their physical desires. Right? Not necessarily sexual ones, but that included, but all their physical desires. So what is the most important thing in their life? What they want. They want, whether it's sleep and eat or sex or comfort or stuff or you know, people to look up to them, whatever. That is, that is their God. That is what drives them, is making that stuff happen. Right? And he says that their God is their belly and their glory is their shame. Now, here's what that means, because this is pretty cool. Right? Because when your God is your belly and you get the things that you want... You glory in that, don't you? I mean, if you, if you focus your life on getting a job, and you get the job, whoo, right? But what if that was your God was getting that job, and then Jesus comes back? Is it going to be whoo anymore? No, you're going to be ashamed. You're going to be ashamed that you, that you ignored him for a job. That's the point. The people whose God is their belly glory in the things that they get, and the things that they desire, and the things that they accumulate. But when Jesus comes back... They're going to be ashamed of how they had frittered their life away. And that's bad, but it gets worse. For they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. That is really bad. So, people who focus, set their mind on earthly things, what is their eternal destiny? Destruction. And I don't care what you believe about eternity, that ain't heaven in anything. Now, here's an interesting thing. He says, I tell you, even weeping, they're enemies of the cross whose end is destruction. Why was he weeping for them? I mean, because Paul's letters, Paul called out false teachers all the time. Right? I mean, he, he called them by name. He said to cast them out and let the devil destroy them. He said he wished they would, that they would mutilate themselves. I mean, Paul had nothing nice to say about false teachers. So why was he weeping over these people whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things? Here's what I believe. I believe it's because these were people who claimed to be Christians. This wasn't the pagans. This wasn't the people who worshipped Zeus and Baal. This wasn't the temple prostitutes. These were people who had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but were not changing the things that Jesus wanted them to change. Their focus was still on the earth. Their God was still their belly. And they had become enemies of the cross of Christ. Now that's an interesting thing. Why were they enemies of the cross of Christ? Let me ask you this. When you invite somebody to church and they oppose it, what is the number one opposition they give? Isn't it, isn't it hypocrites? Isn't it people who claim to believe in Jesus but don't act like they believe in Jesus? Isn't it people who go to church on Sunday morning after they've been out sleeping around and getting liquored up on Saturday night? Isn't it people who cuss and act crazy and act like they did just before they ever made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? What, what have those people become? They're enemies of the cross. They keep people from Jesus. But people who, whose God is their bellies, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, they're enemies of the cross because people look at them and say, no, there's no way it's real because of them. If that's what a Christian is, I'm better than that now. And so they become an enemy to the cross. And their end is 
destruction. In my mind, these would be people like Demas, who abandoned Paul and seemingly Jesus because he loved the things of this world. This would be like the Laodicean church who accumulated all the wealth of this life but missed out on the true riches that Jesus wanted to give them. As we can see, what we focus on, well, it's important, isn't it? See, that by nature, verses 18 and 19, that's our focus. That's our focus as humans, apart from Jesus Christ. Our God is our belly. We glory in things we're going to be ashamed of before Jesus. We set our mind on earthly things and our end is destruction. And, and if, if that focus never changes, then our end is always going to be destruction. Jesus wants to change our focus. If we're going to be like Jesus, a change in focus is absolutely necessary. Change is necessary to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It, that change is necessary the moment you're saved and from that moment on. Until Jesus comes back and changes us into His glory, change is a necessary part of our lives. Disciples of Jesus are constantly being changed by Jesus so they can be more like Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Other than church attendance, how is your life different because of Jesus? Well, let me ask it a different way. Let's say this was the last time you ever came to church. And tomorrow, you put your Bible on the shelf... You never got it out again. You didn't pray except at you know, meals when somebody else was over. You didn't go to church except for weddings and funerals. You didn't read your Bible. How would your life be different than it is right now? I mean, if you took the Jesus part out of your life, would there be a vast difference in the way you live? Or would you largely continue on the way that you are right now? As you honestly look at your life, can you say that you are a disciple of Jesus that is becoming more and more like Jesus? Listen, if you can honestly answer yes to that question, that is great. And that is good. Keep it up. Beware of complacency which always lurks in our lives. Fight against it. Pray fervently that you'll never be complacent. You'll continue to cooperate with Jesus and make whatever changes He wants you to make and follow Him wherever He wants you to make. But what if you can't say yes? If you honestly can't say yes, that you're, become, you're a disciple of Jesus, becoming like Jesus, what are you going to do about it? I thought about it, and I think at best there's three choices. You can do nothing. Whatever. Whatever, I'm not like Jesus, I'm not really any different. But I can, you know, I can name all the true facts about Jesus, and, and I, believe, I say I believe in Jesus. And you can do that, you can hope for the best. Maybe there's an exception to verses 18 and 19 there in Philippians. Maybe you can live with your God as your belly, your glory as your same, your mindset on earthly things and not end in destruction. But I'm going to say I wouldn't put very many eggs in that basket. I wouldn't actually hope that would be true. Second, you can feel really sorry for yourself. Woe is me. I'm never very good. I'm not ever going to be very good. I'm just sorry. I can't. I'm just not going to. I don't get this Christian thing. Woe is me. 
Or you can say, there's a difference between what the Bible says and the life I live. I'm going to go to Jesus and ask for grace and mercy to help me in my time of need. I'm going to own up to the fact that I'm not as I should be. I'm going to be honest about the fact I've not changed as much as I should have. And I am going to ask Jesus to help me be a disciple that's becoming like Him. Only one of those choices demonstrates faith in Jesus. Only one of those choices demonstrates commitment to Jesus. But you're going to make one of those choices today if your life is not like Jesus. Let's all stand as our musicians come forward.